So I've always thought that it would be fun to do a photographic workshop or expedition to somewhere really exotic, you know, like Mongolia. Well, today I'm going to be joined by the perfect person to talk to about it. It's Nikon Ambassador Chris McLennan on Behind the Shot. Hi, welcome to Behind the Shot. I'm Steve Brazel. This is the show where we try and get inside the mind of a great photographer by taking a closer look behind one of their shots from conception to completion and all those stories and challenges that happen in between. As always, this show and every show that I do has an associated blog post with it where I write a little bit about my guest and all the links that we talk about are there. It's at BehindTheShot.tv. So head up to the website, find this episode. You'll find all the information that you uh, you need. If you're watching on YouTube, I can't put the full description there, but I do have all the links down there. Just head down below the like and subscribe button and you can find everything that you need down there. Uh, you know, again, anything that we basically talk about. I want to jump right into today's uh, uh, guest because the way that we connected is like a story I will never forget. I'd like to welcome New Zealand's own Chris McLennan to the show. Chris, how are you? Hi, Steve. I'm very well. Thank you. Thank you for having me. It's it's so nice to meet you because I am aware of your work. I've been aware of your work for quite some time. And the way that we met is just something that I don't think has ever happened on my show before. We met because somebody on your staff, uh, I think it was Aurora, mm -hmm. reached out to me saying that you had gotten inquiries because a previous guest made you their photographer pick for a photographer more people need to know about. It was Jeff Cable. Uh, and Jeff's been on the show a bunch of different times. I consider Jeff a friend, phenomenal photographer. I I'm curious, how do you know Jeff? Um, I originally met Jeff a number of years ago when he was working for Lexar. And um, I was a Lexar ambassador and still am today. And uh, I got together with him in San Francisco where he lives. And um, yeah, we become good friends. And we dealt with each other um, through work as well as, as personally. And um, yeah, I was unaware of uh, him mentioning me on the blog, like uh, you had mentioned, until a couple of people contacted me wanting to know about my photo workshops that had heard uh, through Jeff. And um, yeah, that was amazing from my point of view as well. I, I, I think that's wonderful. I love the way that this, I mean, it really is kind of a small world in photography, even though you're in New Zealand, I'm in Southern California, and Jeff's kind of anywhere you can find him. You mentioned uh, being a Lexar Elite photographer. Uh, I mentioned earlier, you're a Nikon ambassador. You're a low pro bags, low professional. You're a RAB equipment ambassador. And in fact, wearing the, the RAB jacket as we speak. For those people who didn't hear the episode with Jeff and go look you up like some of them, you know, obviously did. Let's just talk about you for a second, because in my research of you, I now think of you as a videographer, which was not originally in my head when I thought your name. You're a drone pilot. But your photography specifically, I, I guess the best way I would describe it is you're a commercial travel photographer. Is that, that how you describe it? Yeah, that's correct. Um, my background is in commercial travel photography. Initially, you know, I've been doing it full time since 1988. Um, I started mainly in the ski industry back then and adventure tourism here in New Zealand. And from there, it progressed to Australia, Fiji, throughout the Pacific, and then through Asia, Europe, North America, and it just kind of evolved um, mostly for tourism boards, sending me to out of the way places to try and promote new products and destinations and so, yeah, I'm very fortunate, you know, I've worked commercially, I think, in 65 countries and um, got to see a lot of the world through my work and I love it. You mentioned 1988. 
And that alone is fascinating yeah. to me because because starting in the ski industry, I hit my microphone again. Uh, starting in the ski industry, going into that you know tourism promotional type work. What's better from from your point of view behind the camera as a photographer? Let's travel back in time. Mm-hmm. What's better today from a photography career point of view or photography gear or however you want to think about this question, really? And what's not better today? It's very different. You know, I would have to say technically today, everything is better, but that also produces a lot of um, a lot of challenges, I guess, as a commercial photographer. Um, when I started, it was all film. You were shooting transparency all the time. So, you know, you had to get it right and you had to know you were getting it right because every time you push the, the button, it cost you money. Um, and, you know, you've got, you know, if you're shooting, say, Valvia, you had half a stop of, of tolerance. You know, you you had to get it right. And um, nowadays it's it's just so much easier. You know, you still have to know what you're doing, but, you know, a lot of people can just take a lot of photographs and there's an incredible amount of talent out there now too. So the competition today is a thousandfold to what it used to be. Um, so that, you know, that's a challenge and, you know, it's, it's kind of fun actually being able to stick with it and stay in this industry right through those changes, you know, no digital, no internet. You know, when I started, right. there was, you couldn't jump no on social YouTube media. and look something up, no social media. You could go to the library and get a book and that was it, you know? And it's it's interesting you mention all this because just yesterday I recorded an episode. It may it may not release before this one. It might, but it's with a returning guest and a friend of mine, David Dewhurst. David is a legend in the motocross world. All the you know golden era. In fact, his new book is the golden era of motocross, the golden era. But all the Roger DeCosters and all of those pictures from the seventies were all you know greatly attributed to David Dewhurst and. I asked him kind of that same question in relation to the shot we were talking about. And it was interesting because I, the way he answered it, I, I had said to him, how would this shot be different if you shot it today? And his answer was basically what you just said. And that was, if I was shooting it today, I've got autofocus that is amazing. So I probably would have put in a tighter lens and shot tighter because I know that as this motorcycle rider is zooming past me on a motocross track, I could track focus with him. Whereas in those days, using a top-down Raleigh Flex camera, uh, there was no way to do that. And so I was shooting wide to make sure that I could get it. And so I probably would have never thought to shoot this environmental scene of it. And, And I think that's true that in that case, the gear that you had then versus today might actually change the viewpoint in your mind, right? It does. And, you know, back then we were always trying to innovate and come up with new things. And, you know, even in the film days, I was, you know, doing things, POV type stuff where I was uh, building brackets and uh, putting a, you know, a full SLR camera, film camera on the front of a freestyle motocross bike or on the wingtips of a pit special, you know, aerobatics plane. And, these things hadn't been seen, you know, they were new and um, we were doing it with, with bigger cameras. And now, you know, with you know, GoPros, et cetera, everybody, that's just so norm, you know, everybody's doing it every day, but you know, we were doing it before it was a thing and it was, and it was so much fun. But at that point, it does make it much more challenging today. I mean, it's easier because of the equipment, but there's so many people doing it and um, you know, and there's the young talent that, you know, they've grown up with it and they're, they're so good. See, not I, necessarily and, good. Not necessarily got a good mind of of the commercial side and business. So a lot of them last a year and then they disappear, which is a shame. Um, but yeah, it's it's just a different world. It's it's neat that that equipment today 
and social media and everything else has democratized being a creative. But again, most small businesses go under in a year. Why? Because the person knows that industry. They may love printing or, you know, owning a liquor store, but they don't know business. And that's, you know, always one of the, the huge things that you've got to get over. You, you do run a business. You mentioned earlier that, you know, people reached out to you about your, your workshops. I want to talk about that for a little bit because the picture we're going to talk about today kind of touches on that. But you do workshops in some interesting places, Mongolia for wildlife and nomad eagle hunters, which is where we're going to go today. Yes. Uh, Papua New Guinea. What do you photograph in Papua New Guinea? Uh, it's mostly tribal cultures there, you know, very, very remote tribal cultures, which are extremely intact and incredibly interesting. They're still living the way that they always did. You know, there's no, where we go, there's no tourist shows. We're just going into the real raw, you know, tribal wildlife in very, very remote parts of Papua New Guinea. So, yeah, it's, it's pretty mind-blowing. And then you do Alaska during the summer for grizzly bears, but you yes. do Alaska during the winter for dog sledding and Arctic landscapes and things like this with the Northern Lights, which is just gorgeous. What a gorgeous picture. Thank You're you. also doing Botswana for shots yes. like this, wildlife, you know, safari type stuff. And then you're also doing, this is an interesting one to me. You are doing chartered private icebreakers to, uh, forgive me, I'm going to butcher this name. Is it Svalbard? Svalbard. Svalbard or Spitsbergen. Yeah, Svalbard. To photograph polar bears. That's got to be amazing. It's incredible. Yeah. Yeah. So you you fly into Oslo in Norway, and then there's another three-hour flight further north um, to a place called Longyearbyen, which is the northernmost settlement in the world that's that's occupied all year round and then from there we get on our ice rated ship and we sail north and um head towards the north pole and work our way through the pack ice you know searching for polar bears and it's 24 hours of daylight it's just incredible uh, a friend of mine right now dave williams idavewilliams.com and he does a youtube channel uh for himself dave williams but he does a series right now called Due North. He's on Due North 2, which is where he converted a Mercedes van into his home. It's his literal home. And he drives all over, you know, up in that area. Right now he's in the very, very northern tip of Norway uh, shooting the northern lights. And uh, just, it's fascinating for me to watch. And yet I'm Southern California. The cold is a little bit weird to me. But okay, let, let's let's start let's start with this variety we just touched on. You're changing hats often. Wildlife mm-hmm. is not landscapes. Landscapes are not action photography. Uh, action photography is not eagle hunters. <laughs> Mentally, as you do your workshops, as you do your photo expeditions, which again, people, the links are all in the blog post. Make sure you go look up what Chris does with expeditions and workshops because they look amazing. But from a photographer point of view behind the camera, what is required mentally for you to change hats for those different subjects? Uh, that's an interesting question. I never really thought it through that way. I just have a love for image making, you know, right from the time I picked up a camera as a teenager, you know, I just love the process of taking photographs. And um, before I was doing that work in the ski industry, my dad was heavily into motor racing and he used to race cars. So I used to, you know, as a young boy, travel around and take photographs of motor racing and I would sell prints, you know, on the next day to different people there. So just that 
I guess was the the basis for the action um, type of my work. And then as my work evolved, when I was doing it full time in the tourism industry, I just got exposed to so many different subjects. And and I think it always came back to the image making. I love travel and I love witnessing all of these incredible events, but then being able to create images that you can share it with other people and they can kind of see the way that you saw it, you know, cause you can have six people standing together, taking photo of the same thing and completely different images. You wouldn't believe you're in the same place. So isn't that the weirdest thing though? It is the weirdest thing. I, it's really I mean, cool I love it, it, but yeah. wow. Yeah, it is. It's really strange. And it's, it's psychologically, everyone is so different and they see different things, but, um, and some people have a real creativity that they can, they can put their own, flavor onto onto a location or a scene and others kind of struggle with it so i think being able to share the way that you see it and explain your thought process and what you would do to you know potentially improve images of that that situation is something that you know to me is a real buzz and the photo expeditions really came out through the amount of places that i'd worked and been to and been exposed to and other photographers are always saying oh man i wish i could go and see that and do that and and that kind of sparked the beginning of the of the photo tours and um the biggest buzz is having people in these amazing locations and then coaching them through, you know, how to fine tune what they're doing and, and just seeing the, you know, that light bulb turn on when they get the shot and they just come away just buzzing. So it's, yeah, it's, that's to me is, is the joy in it. I, I want to unpack a couple of things there for a little bit because it, it is the most interesting thing to me and most wonderful thing that yes, four people, six people, 10 people can stand in the same spot in, in what I do, which is music photography, People complain when they're not in a photo pit in front of the stage and they have to be back at the soundboard. Oh, we're all going to get the same shot. Okay, to an extent. (laughs) But no, because even if we're all shooting at 300 millimeters and we're all shooting the same guitarist, there will be some similarities because you're far away and you're at 300 millimeters. But some people will zoom out. Some people will go to 600 millimeters. Some people will wait to snap the photo until the drummer is not behind them or there's a guitar, guitar head not poking into the shot, it changes. So my question to you is, because what you just said, everybody sees a scene differently, even if they are literally standing on a piece of tape marked on the ground. Mm -hmm. When you walk up to a scene, what's your first thought, your first step? Um, It's like driving a car, really. It becomes second nature. So I kind of see the finished image in my mind before I start. And it, it just happens intuitively now because I've been doing it for so long. So, you know, if I, I see something for the first time, I have, a, I have an image in my brain that, that I, I can see the finished image and it's not, not necessarily exactly what's in front of you or the first thing that everyone else notices. So, you know, you just start seeing pictures within pictures or, you know, different exposures, you know, that's one of the big things also on, on the photo workshops is everyone's really hung up on this correct exposure. And, um, if we were forensics photographers, yeah, I agree with correct, perfect <laughs> exposure, but I always try to talk them to start looking at creative exposure. And, and what you said just now about it, you know, a band, you know, that lead singer might have a spotlight on his face and you might choose to underexpose a scene by three stops and have a black background and just him lit, or you could overexpose and have everything else going on in the background. So technically are they correct exposures? Maybe not, but are they creative exposures? And does that image change dramatically and, sometimes just come alive by doing that. Yes. So exposure, composition, everything, I, I just kind of pre-visualize it and you, you do have that idea in your mind and I can generally see how I think the finished image is going to be when I first come to a scene. And um, I think being able to portray that to other people and explain those thought processes, 
And yeah, they might not agree with them for their creative, you know, um, mindset, but they often take a lot of those things away and can and can use them in the future on other other scenes or other other subjects. And when you see that happen, and you see them come back with the back of their screen nowadays, and they're like, "Wow, look at this!" and it's it's really exciting. I mean, it's it is a real buzz. Like I get a much bigger buzz. Yeah, I get a much bigger buzz out of seeing them get that image and and just be absolutely buzzing on it than taking it myself. It's, it's I'm really taking cool. you with me everywhere because you lead me through my thought process. <laughs> be, before I do, I, I just got to say your 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 comment about a, a singer under a spotlight and you might underexpose it is a perfect example because for that perfect exposure type idea, because I can underexpose at times a lead singer's face, which is really what I care about, and he, the the he or she's face could be perfectly exposed or a stop under that I can recover. And there's still a completely blown out spot on an arm that I can't recover. That doesn't make right. it a bad photo. That's music photography. I'm going to end up with clipped highlights and clipped blacks. And hopefully my subject that I care about is, is exposed properly. But you, but you said you're, you're, you just at this point, you walk up and you see it in your brain, which mm-hmm. is interesting because not everybody does. So I'm walking no. around Vegas with a good friend of mine. Troy Miller, who's a phenomenal wedding photographer. And we're just walking the strip in Vegas. And he's stopping and he's photographing things. And I'm literally looking at him going, I don't understand what you're photographing. I don't, I don't see it. Right. I, I don't understand that. What are some of the reasons when you do your workshops or your expeditions that amateurs don't see the scene? You know, see the scene, quote unquote. Yep. I think, you know, for me, it's just talking them through what I'm seeing. But often, you know, often I learn a lot from them as well. They might be going, well, I, I'm looking at it this way. And, I, you know, there'll be something that, that they've done that I'm like, wow, well, I didn't see that. That's really special as well. And there's no right or wrong way if, it, you know, six people might take six different photos. Three of them might be amazing. Three of them might need some work. But just because what you see is what you focus in on and do your thing on is not necessarily the only way to capture an image or, or to capture a scene and, and to be unique because – if we all had the same taste and the same way of looking at things then photography would get pretty boring pretty quick. So, um, you know, often there'll be other things come up that, you know, they've seen that I haven't seen and it's just sharing that knowledge and just giving them little bits and pieces to fine tune what they've started with. And often it can be, you know, in composition wise with landscapes and things that can be moving the camera a couple of inches, you know, whether it's left, right, up, down, you know, it might be just a little horizon line going through, you know, a bear's head or something. And if you come up a foot, all of a sudden he's against clean water and, you know, just tiny subliminal things that they don't pick up on. And I always get them to take the picture the way that they were and then the new one and don't delete the old one, keep the two, go back to it and work between the two and go, okay, that looks much better. Why does it look much better? How can I think like that in the future? So always try and keep that first stage and the last stage and, you immediately know looking at them that one's much better than the other, but right. you've got to get it into your mind as to why yeah. that is and how do I recreate that in the future and in different circumstances, you know, just looking for yeah. those tiny details that make a big difference. Well, and it's funny because if they go back with those two pictures, one with mm-hmm. the horizon through the polar bear's head and one with the head in a clean spot, as it were, mm-hmm. like you say, they'll immediately know but it's part of the reason you and I talked in the green room before we started recording that on each show, I describe the shot verbally for those on the on the audio feed. 
I don't often say, I do that for my own shots in private mm -hmm. because yeah. sometimes you will look at two shots and in your mind, you know one of them's better. A, you may struggle to figure out which one is better because you're not sure why it's better. And verbalizing mm -hmm. a shot out loud can just be an amazing tool to when, when you really dissect a shot verbally to, to help you you know, catch that. Let, let's get into today's image. Before we do, quick reminder for everybody. First and foremost, this is a podcast. Yes, it's on YouTube. Yes, you can subscribe on YouTube. You can give a thumbs up. You can hit the bell. The bell is actually a critical part. You can find all the links and everything down below. But first and foremost, it is a podcast and it is available wherever you get podcasts in an audio only format or a video format if your outlet of choice supports video. Uh, so go grab whichever one you want. You can find all the ways you can subscribe over at BehindTheShot.tv. Wherever you're getting the show, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Pandora, Spotify, YouTube, whatever, you know, thumbs up, star reviews, written reviews, they are all very, very much appreciated. And again, everything that you're going to need as far as links and everything are over at the, uh, the blog post at BehindTheShot.tv. So let's jump into today's shot. I think I've got the name on this shot right. Do you just, do, first of all, do you normally name your shots? Um, no, because there's so many, but generally, uh, yeah, if we're going to do something like this, you would you would give it a title and um, tell me what you've got there. I, I'm thinking the Eagle Hunter. Yeah, that pretty much sums it up. It's not a very, yeah, it's just very descriptive, but it's not a very artistic title, but we'll take it. What, what, what would you name it? It is, yeah. I'd probably spend some time thinking about that, but no, well, let's just run with the Eagle Hunter for now. <laughs> okay. Uh, it's funny because years ago when I was entering images into image competition and you want them named because they'll usually read the name of the image to the judges before they show it. They get a picture in their head. They show the image to right. see how it matches. And I was really yeah. struggling with it. And somebody said to me, look up blues song titles or jazz song titles. And strangely, it worked. Like you can mm. really pull out some really interesting images by looking at blues or jazz, jazz song titles. Uh, okay. I want to yeah. talk about the technical stuff first, get that out of the way for those that, that want to know. You shot this according to the EXIF data and correct me if I'm, I'm wrong anywhere, but it says that mm -hmm. you shot this in aperture priority. Is that normal for I you? Um, it varies. Yeah. I would say 50, 50 between aperture priority and manual. Um, you know, it just depends on the situation. Um, but yeah, I, I'm yeah, 50, 50. Uh, so, you know, some of these images, when I was shooting on this particular day, I was shooting a manual at other times I was shooting an aperture priority and, you know, the, um, the Eagle hunters that we were working with, they, they spoke no English, but I've got local guys on the ground there that were, you know, communicating with them and getting them to do, you know, particular things for our photography. And um, we were shifting locations and lighting. And, and in this particular instance, uh, yeah, I chose to shoot aperture priority. And I do okay. like shooting aperture priority, yeah. Well, for this type of thing, it makes total sense. I mean, it, it yeah, fits. You're, totally. you're at ISO 800. Mm -hmm. In the aperture priority, you ended up at 6.3, which yep. then landed your shutter at 21, 2500th of a second. You're mm -hmm. shooting at 390 millimeters, plenty of shutter yes. speed to freeze that focal length yep. and white balance of auto. And I'm, I'm, here's where I'm interested in this. Again, seven people would shoot this 10 different ways. Okay. Yep. But you're an aperture priority and you 
chose to choose that that's the one you picked mm-hmm. ended up at one 200 uh, i'm sorry 2500th of a second why'd you focus on the 63 like i think in my head i'm thinking i would have gone for s- safety depth you know whatever depth of field moving horse riding towards me which is always one of the most challenging autofocus issues and we'll dive into the autofocus that you used later but yep. I, 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 I'm thinking in my head, cause I don't do this for a living. I probably would have gone F8 or maybe even, even higher than that. What was your yeah. thought process on the six, three, a certain softness you wanted in the background? Yeah. Well, you know, and I hear what you're saying and that is what I often would do say for photographing birds in flight. I always try and get people, if there's plenty of light, try and get people to F8, F11, just to give you that depth of field and that bit of a buffer, if you like for the autofocus here. Um, I wanted a little bit of depth of field because I was focusing actually on the eye of the of the man, the eagle hunter, on the um, on the horseback. But I wanted the horse to be the horse's head and the eagle both to be in focus. But also the whole concept of this was I was trying to isolate them from the background. So you know it was a juggling act. Of, you know you wanted all of your subject matter to be in focus, but I really wanted to isolate it from that background. Um, so that was kind of where I found to be quite a sweet spot. And you know the the eye of the eagle, the eye of the man and the horse are all, you know, perfectly in focus. It, it works perfectly to me for the simple sense that the background is just the right amount of softness. Like I can mm-hmm. see what it is, what's there, but it's, it's enough out of focus that that's, there's a 3D effect where that subject just leaps towards me out of the picture. You shot this with a Z9, which autofocus wise is an amazing camera. You shot it yeah. with a 180 to 400 uh, Nikkor lens with yep. a teleconverter, 1.4 teleconverter uh, on it. Yep. Yep. Amazing lens, that's, right? Do you, do you like that lens? I love it. Yeah. That's the one. Yeah. That's, that's the F lens from the previous, you know, from the DSLR era, um, with the, with the adapter on it, the FTZ adapter. Um, mm-hmm. but the teleconverter wasn't engaged at this point. Um, but yeah, I absolutely love that lens and it performed incredibly with the, with the Z9. You know, it's um, that was one of the things when I was changing to mirrorless, you know, going and I was shooting with the D850s, which I loved um, that lens. I was like, oh, man, I can't I can't not have this lens. You know, there's nothing at the moment that I would replace it with, but it performs better on the Z9 than it did on the, you know, on the D5s and um, D850. So absolutely love it. It, that's a big jump from a D850. I mean, it's not like you're going from a D5 to a Z9. Going from a D850 to a Z9, that's a leap in technology there. For- yeah, well, that said, you know, I did have the D5s. I had D5s and D850s, but I just loved the image quality from the 850 and the file size. And, and I ended right. up changing from the D5s to the D850s. And then I had the Z7 Mark IIs, uh, which I was mainly using for video work. And I still favor the D850. You know, I still couldn't get my head that, around the fact that I would ever move to mirrorless until the Z9 come out. And that was it. D850s are gone now. It's such an amazing <laughs> body. And I'm, I'm a Canon shooter, but I borrowed my friend yeah. Zena, same guy I talked about earlier, Troy. Uh, I borrowed mm-hmm. his Z9 for the Z9 autofocus explained where I went through every autofocus setting on that camera. And as I'm going through it, I'm going, I want one of these. <laughs> it's like... Well, yeah, it's Canada, really interesting. Canon should be afraid of me. Yeah, I had, um, yeah, I had 
another guy on this particular Mongolia trip who's a, a very good wildlife shooter, and he had he had a, a Sony setup plus the Z9, um, and I had a bunch of other Nikon shooters and Canon shooters. So there were seven guests, and at the end of the trip, I believe that they they all went home, and I, there was one guy went and bought two Z9s. One for himself, one for his wife. Uh, another girl went and changed her whole system from Canon to Z9. Uh, another guy went from the Z7 Mark II to the Z9. I think there was eight Z9s bought from out of that trip. Not through me. You know, they just right. were looking at it and going, I, "That's that's what I want." And um, yeah, it's it if, phenomenal. If you've never held that, and by the way, with all due respect to Canon, the R3 is also an amazing oh. body, and I want an R3 really bad since I'm a Canon shooter. For, yeah. for those of you that are on audio, I'm going to try and explain this shot to you. Usual disclaimer comes in, and that is that I'm going to suck at it, but we're going to give it a shot anyway. Uh, I want you to picture in your mind a desert landscape, rocks and dirt in the foreground, then some low brushes in the midground, you know, you know, very, very low. I'm talking like maybe a foot or so, just low brush, not super green bushes, more like desert brush. Desert floor continues in the background, way far in the distance, slowly rises up to mountains in the far distance. There is almost no vis visible vegetation here at all. It's just dirt other than those, you know, those bushes that are kind of in the middle. And some of the rocks are rather large. I mean, it's it's just this deserty, deserted thing. Now, right in the middle, just below the top third, is a horse and a rider. The horse is in full gallop mode. So camera right, the horse's left hooves are up. You've got that gesture going where the, the hooves are off the ground. The horse is brown. It's got white on its face. The uh, harness and bit are like this black leather with studs in it, which is really kind of cool looking. I got to be honest, it's it, it kind of adds something to the picture for some odd reason, just the fact that the studs are there. But what really makes the shot tell you the story is two things. One, the writer themselves. They're dressed in black boots, jeans, a jacket, and this very unique hat that looks like what you would picture if you looked up in an encyclopedia or on, on Google, Mongolian outfits, right? The writer is on the horse. The horse and the writer are leaning to one side, so they're leaning uh, to their right, camera left, right? And the cool thing is this rider's got their right arm stretched out and there is an eagle, an actual eagle on his outstretched arm, wings fully spread. Like, and and the 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 angle of the eagle matters here. Right. So the horse rider is leaning to our left horse and the rider. The arm is stretched out towards our left. So the horse rider is on like the right rule of third, leaning towards the left rule of third. And that eagle, the wings are almost vertical with the left rule of third with the head pointing out of the frame. So it's almost like the eagle is flying to the left and pulling the horse. There's this weird kind of gesture that the, the eagle is leading this. There's a cloud of dust coming up behind the horse behind the, the the horse's hooves on the right side, the ones that are kicked up. And it's nothing but action and layers in this whole thing. You immediately get the story of the shot. Did I miss anything? 
No, I think you got it pretty covered there. Good description. So again, photographing in Mongolia to me just sounds fascinating because the culture is so different from what we experience in, you know, Western culture, the lifestyle, the landscape is different than what we have. The dress, all of it is so different. Give me the helicopter view. What is the story of this shot from your point of view behind the camera? Yeah, I think your description is is fantastic for the actual image looking at it. Um, to me, the, you know, the story is that bond and interaction between these three living beings, you know, the, the eagle hunter with his eagle and his horse. And um, these guys are of a Kazakh descent, uh, descent originally, and um, they live a nomadic lifestyle. They still live a nomadic lifestyle today. They, they herd goats and sheep and, and they move. Um, they live in canvas tents and, and they move, you know, they move to follow the food and the food source for the goats and sheep. And, and during the winter, they hunt with eagles. And um, oh, that actually brings me back to what you said before about the title for the, uh, for the image. The, um, I posted it on Instagram at one stage and I just said eagle hunters of Mongolia and, you know, I had a, a bunch of people chiming in saying, oh, it's so terrible that they hunt eagles. Um, so yeah, you do have to be a little bit careful with your title sometimes of, of what you uh, what you title an image. So, you know, these people had, had picked up on the title and thought that, the, uh, thought that the guy on the horse was actually hunting the eagle. So, um, but what they do is during the winter, they use the eagles and they work, they, uh, they tame these eagles at a very young age. They actually kept them wild from the nest and they bring them up and they live in their home and they feed them and they, uh, they have an incredible bond. And they use these eagles to hunt um, foxes and hares and, and rabbits, you know, during the winter months when it's cold and food scarce. Uh, so they'll have the, the eagle on their arm on horseback and um, they can be galloping along or walking along, spotting, a, you know, the game in the distance. And they'll release the eagle and the eagle will swoop down and hunt the prey. And um, then they'll come in and they'll, and they'll share it. And the cool thing is, you know, this, this tradition is centuries old and um, they do capture these eagles wild from the nest when they're young, but they, they treat them extremely well. They have an incredible bond. And the really cool thing is then when they become mature and old enough to, to breed, they release them back into the wild. So these eagles between four and seven years old are, are released back into the wild. So they take them out to, you know, a long way from where they're living. Um, they will usually slaughter a goat give them a starting point to, to feed and then they'll they'll release them and let them live while they come back and check on them to make sure they're doing okay but they try to distance from them at that point so that they do go back into the wild and, and you know and it's very successful so you know, it takes a lot for us to get our heads around this whole concept of what they're doing but anyway this was trying to capture the um the essence of these guys and the rawness and and the energy when they're when they're out hunting so you know, we had a, a variety of different situations that we'd shot just prior to this. We'd been shooting in a frozen riverbed. So this guy's wearing all fur clothing, by the way. It's it's wintertime there. So we're talking, you know, I'm not sure in Fahrenheit, but we're talking at freezing point, zero to minus 10 degrees. Um, minus 15 was sort of the coldest we had. Daytime, a little warmer. But, you know, it was, it was cold weather. Um, he's dressed all in fur and um, just trying to really capture the essence of of the action and what's involved and the the skill level and the and the teamwork um between the the three different uh participants if you like and i was just starting to say earlier we've been shooting in a frozen riverbed and and they were galloping up the riverbed and was this incredible storm clouds behind so we were low shooting wide angle to take in all of this expansive sky and you know a very different shot to this when we got here the concept was to 
use a longer lens, have this horse coming straight at you and being dominant um, so that it, you know, it looked like it was literally going to mow you down. Sometimes it felt like it was. So we had them galloping directly at the camera um, using longer lenses to, you know, to isolate them from the background, but also not to have the sky in above the mountains, not to have any of those extra distractions and, and really to try and isolate the action from the backdrop. Then I had everybody really low. We were all lying on the ground. And um, again, the, the idea of that was two things. Um, it makes that horse coming straight at you look more dominant because it's slightly above you. You're looking, you know, slightly up at it. So it's literally feels like it's going to run you over. And also um, the perception of shallow depth of field, because by getting lower, it doesn't change the depth of field, but by getting lower, you're not seeing that bit of land just in front and just behind the horse that is still in focus. So that disappears. So all of a sudden, and this is what I was talking about before, you know, I got people to take the photograph, they all were standing up, you know, and some were kneeling and then I was going, okay, get lower, lower, lower. So take your photograph standing up, come down here, lie on the ground, take it down here, now have a look at the two pictures. And, you know, again, it's one of those things, that tiny little difference just made the picture so much more dramatic, isolated the background so much more, and it looked really much more like it was going to gallop right over top of you. Just, you know, those tiny little things that change the perception of depth of field makes the whole picture more dominant. It, it changes the perspective. And I will argue it's more cinematic and mm. your, your description just triggered the word harmony in me. There is a, there is a, there is a harmony between these three entities, the yes. bird, the horse, the rider, they're all leaning the same way. They're all connected. It's still amazing to me. Like here in Southern California, there are people with, you know, hawks that will, you know, fly off, come back to their arm, whatever. I never thought yeah. of it with an eagle. And it's interesting to me the eagle would catch the prey and bring it back and not just instinctively just keep it for itself, fly away and, and keep it. That's fascinating to me. I'm not, yeah, I'm not so sure that it brings it back. It, it'll capture it and hold it, and then they'll come and they'll, they can take the prey from the eagle. You know, I'm sure it, it would prefer to keep it, I'm sure, but um, they, it gets fed and they work together. And, that, you know, that you see these guys when they're not on their horses with their eagles. The bond is incredible. It's like, you know, to them, it, you, you see them, you know, the, the eagle's nuzzling into them, and it's, it's, it's quite incredible. It, it, I, I would love to see this in person. The and by the way, the, there is a picture of the the river shoot at the blog post behind the shot TV. The light here is great. Do you remember what time of day this was? I don't actually, but I it, it wasn't early morning or late evening. Although the light is very directional because it's it's midwinter. Well, not midwinter, but it's it was late winter. Um, because sorry, the light winter. is we are coming. Late winter. The the light is coming from. You know, I'm going to say like 10 o'clock camera left mm -hmm. and yeah. is warm and beautiful. It, it's not creating any, you know, harsh, harsh shadows. It's really subtle and yet lighting. It's on the right side. When I say right side, I don't mean right side versus left. I mean, it's on the it's on the correct side, I'll say, <laughs> for lighting up the face of this writer almost as though it, if you had posed this in a studio and composited it, you couldn't get better light on the underside of that eagle and its wings, the face of the rider and the face of the horse. It couldn't be done. I, the, the autofocus to me is yeah, one well, of the I'll things on, that intrigues me here. Go, go ahead. Yep. I'll touch on the light thing too, because yeah, the beauty of it here is you are in a desert type landscape and um, we, 
through um, you know my local guys on the ground. You know, we had organised with these these uh, eagle hunters, and we spent a couple of days with them. We went to their homes, to their to their gears or yurts, um, and we we got to spend a lot of time with them. And because you're in this big desert landscape, you know, we were able to communicate um, the direction we wanted them to come to to utilise that light. So we were rotating and using different you know lighting angles to to create this. So yeah, the light is. Um, coming from the left, you know, from the viewer's left and hitting on one side. And it's um, giving, it's beautifully lit, like you said, but it's also giving a three-dimensional feel with a shadow on the on the right-hand side. But when the eagle is flaring out, it's it's still beautifully lit on its head. There's actually a catch light. I don't know if you can pick it up in, um, on your screens here, but there's a perfect little catch light in the eagle's eye as well as the rider and the horse. Um, so, yeah, it was it was really cool, but we were able to, you know, throughout the day, move and move our angles to, to adjust, um, you know, the lighting that we were getting just, because we had this just huge, big area to work in. Everything about this light, not only direction, but quality of light, temperature of light mm. is all just beautiful. Let, let's, let's dive into autofocus here because okay. again, Z9 is amazing autofocus, but it's still a camera. And is, yeah. one of the most challenging autofocus situations is when a subject is moving quickly at you and changing either speed or plane or angle and this guy's leaning then he's sitting up so first of all what af mode do you use for something like this um well i'm reasonably new well i was reasonably new with the z9 at this point so i was using a couple of different modes, to be honest. Um, I was going back to my old school and using the toggle with my thumb on the back and tracking the autofocus um, point on a continuous focus mode manually at times. And other times I was using the, the eye focus, the eye tracking on the human okay. eye tracking mode to track onto the rider. Have you, and, have um, you tried the 3D tracking in this? Well, I was using the 3D, but lock and but the people tracking with the 3D. So there's the the, there's two different things you can adjust there. You could do the, the people tracking or the animal tracking, and then you can use the 3D or the full area. So yeah, I had tried with the 3D and the people tracking. So locking it onto the rider and then letting it track the rider and 100% um, success with that autofocus. But again, you know, for me, it was a learning thing because I was new to that camera, relatively new to that camera, using it in that mode with something moving this quickly. So I was jumping back to my old school ways and that, and just so that I had a safety buffer, but you know, you know, in the long run. But, but your hit necessary. ratio with, with that setup was high? 100%. Wow, interesting. Ridic are you, are you a back button focus person or not? No, I'm, no, I'm not. Okay. No. Um, and uh, the reason for that, you know, people always ask me that. And I, you know, I, I don't try and convert people from back button focus if they're doing it because, you know, whatever you're used to, whatever suits you for your reason, you know, is, is what you should stick with. And I'll, I'll cede a few things to people um, as to why I didn't back button focus. And that, you know, that could change in the future, but I don't, I don't think it will. Um, previous to the, having these features with eye tracking focus and things, my thumb was really busy. You know, if I was, if I was shooting, looking through a camera um, in the mirrorless age, I was, I was using the, my thumb for exposure compensation as well right. as moving the focus point. So my thumb was always really busy. I didn't have time to let those go, to go back to pushing this. And, you know, I had to push the shutter button anyway to take the picture. So it made total sense to me to autofocus with the shutter button, use my thumb to move the focus point and for exposure compensation. And now I still do that with the mirrorless as well with exposure compensation at times. You know, when these guys are galloping towards me, I found as they were getting closer, there was times when I would just dial up a third of a click or two thirds of a click um, just to change the exposure as they were coming forward. 
And, you know, that's something that I still do. You know, I could have, a million ways I could have done that. I could have done it manually. I could have, you know, whatever. But, you know, that's that's the way that I'm used to working and it's hard to teach an old dog new tricks. Oh, I, I know the feeling. I'll, <laughs> I'll get you converted. Uh, yeah, oh, look. Yeah. I'm kidding. I'm kidding. I want to touch, touch on composition here for a minute because I'm, I'm really dying to know in your head what's happening because this has the, the quality of landscape photography with layering. It has, we talked about harmony in the subject matter of which there are three, and then it has a balance to it as well. So purely from a landscape point of view, foreground, midground, background subject, they're all perfectly defined, right? With the, and by the way, that shrubbery in the, in the midground is so perfect to <laughs> separate the foreground, the low, you're down low against the rocks, the midground and the background. The rider goes from the right third to the left third, balanced. The horse is closer to the third. The rider is leaning towards the other third, arms stretched out. Eagle with the wings vertical, both wings fully stretched out and hitting that other third. They're down below the top third. And so they're just kind of in that center area of the bottom two thirds. But then you've got the bushes that kind of spread out and you've got those shadows in the in the mountains in the background. Are you, when you're looking through the camera, are you thinking any of that? Um, you are, but you know, when something's moving as quickly as this, you don't have the time on every single image to be thinking. But I know, you know, when they're coming towards me after we'd done it a couple of times, I knew that the, where the sweet spot was that I wanted to be taking the picture. And, um, you know, there was times as well where I'd moved to the left and had uh, that diagonal line in the background um, moving across so that it was a, a clearer backdrop drop against the horse. But, you know, with something that's moving this quickly, there was always, you know, and I we took a lot of photographs. We, we, you know, we spent a few hours doing this particular shot and we took a lot of photographs and it was a matter then of going back through. And like I said earlier, there's no matter how many photos take, there's always one that stands out that's your favorite. And to me, this one, um, you know, the angle of the eagle, the light in the eye of the eagle. And you were talking before the way it looks like the eagle is leading, you know, it's almost like it's flying like a kite, but it's, you know, it's. Yes, that's yeah. right. And that's what it looked like at the time because it is, it's holding onto his hand, this big leather glove. And he's also got a lead on its, on its feet. And it, it is literally flying like a kite, you know, with, with the air. And it's, it's quite dynamic when they get up enough speed and coming towards you. So the hoof that you're talking about that's flicking out to the right, I think adds to the composition. There was other images where, you know, all four hooves were off the ground and you could see little stones and things flying out, which was super dramatic, but you know, the eagle might not have been in quite as good an angle. So it's a matter of just going through in a situation like this and picking through the, the number of shots you got. And there's always, like I say, one that go, yeah, that's the one I like because of the dramatic angles and the light. And yeah, there's others where I might've liked the hooves better when they were all off the ground or, you know, other particular things, but there's always something. That, that makes triggers one. See, and this is this this conversation. This is this is what I love about this, right? So, as you're describing what you just went through, I had not considered that line in the mountains right there. Yeah. And now, if we move across <laughs> to the left and had that where you've drawn the line, if you had that line above the uh, eagle's wing, I would have liked that. But you know, when no, something's and, moving and this quickly, you can't always get everything. But oh, no, is, no. See, here's nice why I love third. this. I love this exactly why it is. Here's why. A, okay. the rider's head doesn't intersect the line. So the rider's head is a frame within a frame. 
You got geometry going on because now you've got a triangle there. Then you have another triangle up here, right? Mm -hmm. uh, there's a lot happening in here. But the reason that I specifically like, clear, there we go. The reason I specifically like that is when you when you draw that line in your mind and you see the, the writer is now uh, at the perfect angle to that line. Right. That yes. is effectively the horizon for that writer's angle leaning. And the wing going out of it is kind of like that. Um, what's the thought process I'm looking for here? Think of when you have a frame, but sometimes they'll show, you know, a part of that person come out of the, the frame. So it's almost now it's a window and they've kind right. of expanded outside the window. I just, yeah. Okay. I get this. So yeah. I got to put my pencil down. I'm going to get too excited and start drawing more. <laughs> so, and by the way, that's another great thing. Put, print a picture and draw on it and you'll, you'll learn a ton about whether that picture works or not. Mm -hmm. And this one freaking works. Post-processing. This looks so real. Like it doesn't, I, I don't think it's fresh out of camera, straight out of camera, but I believe it could be straight out of camera. You didn't do a lot to this. It just looks done right. What would you have, what, what do you normally do to an image? What did you do to this? Um, very, I, I know I, do, I can't remember exactly what I'd do, but it'd be very little. Um, generally, I'd start off looking at the color balance. It'd be my first point and black points, white points. Um, and I would generally in Lightroom use my black and white sliders first. Look for clipping, and there was no clipping. But you know, pulling the, the blacks to the left, right, whites to the right, and just see how things change. And generally, I find when you do that, it cleans up a whole lot of other things as well. But um, yeah, I would say I shot with auto white balance, and I think it had a slight green cast to it at the time. I would have tweaked that a little bit, and um, probably very little else. Wow, just so well done. Let me let me switch gears. First of all, this is the type of workshop you do also, right? Your your photo expeditions in Mongolia, this is the type of stuff they'd shoot, right? Yes, yeah, this and, and wildlife, a lot of wildlife. There's some incredible diversity of wildlife and, you know, wild horses and foxes and wolves and palace cats and our bucket list, you know, ultimate item is, is snow leopards. Um, there are snow leopards in some of the areas that we go to, but, you know, they're being named a ghost cat for a reason. So, you know, we don't give people... Um, false uh well what's the word for it you know you've got to be realistic about about your odds and and we had a snow leopard sighting um so we did see snow leopard but we we weren't able to photograph it was too distant and and, and it was quick but um you know the guys that we work with do have very regular sightings that are able to be photographed so you know it's it's a definite possibility so wildlife the action of these guys the culture that you know the way that they live too you know people were really fascinated just seeing how they live in their gears the gears like a yurt you know it's a, um, a hard floored uh, tent with a, with a wood fire and we, we slept in those ourselves as well with the wood stoves in them and just incredible lifestyle um so different to anything that we're used to and, and the bond between man and eagle and horse and you know it's quite quite spectacular you know sensory overload really and beautiful you know such a landscape so if you want to know more about Chris's workshops, expeditions to any of the places we talked about earlier, and again, you can see a bunch of his photos. I've got a small gallery of his work along with the little bit that I, I wrote about him and all the links at the blog post. Check them out because it to me, it sounds like a blast. I, I want to switch gears. 
Let's go into a speed round of questions. Answer these with whatever the first thing that pops to your mind are. Ready? <laughs> okay. Top travel photography tip. Open mind. Oh, I didn't see that one coming. I like that. <laughs> What's your top well, tip? Well, go ahead. Yeah, the thing I'll expand on that too is um, when you arrive at a new place, I always try and remember my first impressions because you always arrive somewhere and you go, oh, wow, look at that. Wow, look at that. Two days later, you become desensitized and you get home and you go, oh, I wish I took a photo of <laughs> such and such. So listen to those first impressions because you don't always have the opportunity to photograph them straight away. But if something makes you go, wow, remember it and remember what it was because you can, especially if you've been on a long haul airplane and you're, you know, you get to a location, you've been there two or three days, you become very desensitized. Your brain sort of switches off to the, to the magic of these things that captured you when you first got there. So, you know, remember the things that grab your eye when you first get there, because you might just be getting off the plane and see something and go, wow, wow. Or, you know, driving somewhere, but it's very easy to forget them if you don't try and register that, particularly if you're very tired and you'd be traveling a long way or, you know, you spend a few days there and all of a sudden that things become semi-normal to you. So try and remember those those little well moments. So I've had people reach out to me and ask me questions about what they should do going to a workshop or an expedition. And specifically the one I'm thinking of was somebody who was going to be attending David Bergman's concert photography shoot from the pit workshop. They said, is there anything I should plan for or bring or do or think? What is your top tip for an attendee of a workshop slash expedition? Look, you know, bring an open mind. And um, I think one of the, one of the things that, that, is one of the most common things that I hear from people is that, you know, I'd love to come on your on your workshop. I would love to come on one of your trips, but I don't think I'm ready yet. I'm not at that level, you know. And to me, that's really counterintuitive for what I try to offer because, you know, we have everyone from, you know, I had a lady once on a on a trip um, in Alaska on a bear trip and um, she had never had a camera, never picked up a camera before. I met her a day early and we went to a camera store, bought her a camera, bought her a full setup and um, she came on that trip and did everything from scratch. So, you know, we individualized every person that's on there. And, you know, my thing is, you know, it's not anything to feel, you know, people feel uncomfortable. Oh, I don't know enough, but the less you know, the more you can learn. And, you know, you'll come away having learned a lot more than the guy that, that's been doing it for 20 years. So, you know, it's, it's just getting over that. Um, people have an insecurity. They think that they're, they're not at the right level yet. So, um, that is something that we try to work around really quickly and make them feel comfortable asking because nothing should be a problem. And you know, there's so much more you can offer someone who's at that level. So that's, that's probably one of the most common things people go, Oh, I'm not ready yet. It's not what it's about. What's your favorite composition rule? If you have one, I think rules are made to be broken, but rule of thirds is always in my mind all the time, you know, okay. leading, leading lines from the corner of the frame and, and rule of thirds. More people need to think leading lines too, I think. Favorite source of inspiration? Life. <laughs> Life, nature. Yeah. I mean, like I said earlier, when I started, you know, it really was the school of hard knocks. You were shooting film. You didn't have the internet. You didn't have YouTube. You didn't, you know, you literally, you could look it up in books. But if you were trying to do it, excuse me, as a living, you didn't really have the time to do that either. So, you really had to self-analyze everything you did and um, and be hard on yourself as well. And if something wasn't right, try and work out why it wasn't right and what you could do to fix it. And so, you know, I think, yeah, that, that probably sounds a bit weird, but coming from film era that you really had to do that. 
Favorite band or performer? Oh my gosh. <laughs> yeah, put me on the spot there. Um, look, there's a lot of uh, a lot of local bands here in New Zealand that I really like, actually, and I'm, I I really listen to background sort of chill music, so I'm pretty open to, to almost anything. But uh, you know, a lot of the sort of fringe uh, local bands here, I, I think, are really cool. You know, some of the you know, we've got a band, Fate. Salmonella Dub. Um, sorry. No, that's right. Salmonella Dub would be one that that I that I really like. A, a Kiwi Kiwi band. Check it out. You probably haven't heard it, but yeah, go and have a look at it. What's your favorite drink? <laughs> Whiskey, single malt. Oh, you and Scottish I are going to be friends. Yeah, yep. you and I are going to be so, friends. Mine mine leans towards American. My collection, but I have yep. a good amount of Japanese and a good amount of single malt scotches i've got a good amount of irish but i tend to lean more american yep. i've got 109 yep. bottles in my collection though. nice nice yeah you yeah. and you and i will be close uh i've got a so, over there but they're all scotch they're all single malt scotch i'm a scotch okay so descent. what's your favorite so, what, yeah. if you were to pick one of those bottles what's your favorite scotch right now um as a go-to value for money um drinkable would be glenn Morangi. just the 10 year old glenn Morangi. beautiful tried a new one last night which is Aberlou, I had a friend call over and he turned up with oh, a bottle Aberlour. of Aberlou, which Aberlour. Yeah, Aberlour. yeah I, I wasn't the, familiar. Uh, Abunad? I wasn't familiar with it. I could, I could see it in the distance over there, so sorry, I can't tell you. It wasn't one I was familiar with, but it was very, very nice. Yeah, yeah I love I love Aberlour. Glen Morangi 18 is one of my favorites, actually. Yeah, yeah. And you can get a 19 as well. There's a 19 that they only do through duty-free outlets, and it's really nice. Oh. It's weird. Yeah, yeah. I did. Uh, okay. I'm going to have to look into that one. So final question. Is there any photographer that you think more people should know about? This is how I found you. Um, there's a lot. I mean, there's a lot of photographers I look up to, but one that people may not know about that they should check out. Um, there's a guy who has, who's been a, who has came on this Mongolia trip, actually. Eric, Eric Easterly. E-S-T-E-R-L-E. Um, check him out. Have a look online. Uh, Look up the social media. Extremely good. I, I will look him up and make sure the links and any links we talked about are in, again, the blog post behind the shot. Mm -hmm. You guys know the routine. I don't have to say that every time. Chris, if people want to connect with you, your yep. website is what? Mm -hmm. photography.com. Okay. M-C-L-E-N-N-A-N. That's correct. Uh, yep. Just so that people know it's not McLennan, it's McLennan. So with an A-N at the end. Instagram, it's Chris underscore McLennan one. Facebook it, yeah. is Chris dot McLennan dot photography. And then of course, YouTube, it's Chris McLennan. How often are you posting to YouTube? Uh, not, not often enough. I, I should be doing more. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's a hard thing, you know, we're very busy doing photography and, um, you know, it's, it's hard to keep up with all these different platforms and things. So yeah, it's, uh, I should do a lot more, but at time is always the, the issue. Oh, I know that feeling all too well. Chris, I am, again, thank you. I, was it Aurora that reached out to me? Yes, it was, yes. Yeah. yeah. Please thank Aurora for reaching out. And I cannot say thank you thank enough you. for doing this. It was an absolute pleasure meeting you, man. You too, thank you. And we'll meet up for one of those single malts sometime. Oh, definitely. <laughs> and and we'll have to do that maybe in, I don't know, Mongolia, Mongolia. or something. <laughs> Everybody make sure... <laughs> Make sure that you head to the blog post. It's at behindtheshot.tv. You'll find all the links and everything that we talk about, a little bit that I wrote about Chris, a small gallery of Chris's work. But my suggestion is go look at his website, find out all the stuff that he's doing. If you want to find me, 
It's Steve, you know, aside from the podcast, stevebrazel.com, like the country Brazil, but two L's, at Steve Brazel anywhere on social media, or at Behind the Shot TV anywhere on social media. It makes it either Facebook's the only one I'm not really on anymore. I kind of gave up Facebook a while ago. I think it's Steve Brazel Photography there, but it's Behind the Shot TV anywhere. Twitter and Instagram, I'm on a lot. I'm also on uh, Mastodon, and it's Steve Brazel on on all of those type things. Again, if you're watching on YouTube, please head down, hit the bell, hit the thumb, hit the subscribe, do all of that type stuff. You guys know the routine. And to everybody, thank you so much for watching. Make sure that you join us on the next show as we try and get inside the mind of a great photographer by taking a closer look behind the shot. 